Hello friends, welcome to the Midweeks again. We're in Kings and we're in a great chapter. Uh, This is the showdown between Elijah and Yahweh versus the prophets of Baal. Uh, Pronounced Baal in Hebrew, but we say Baal because we don't know what to do with two A's together generally. Anytime you see a word with two A's together in it, it's probably from Hebrew, but whatever. So I was thinking this morning as I was uh, doing some reading on the book of Deuteronomy that perhaps one of the reasons why Kings has this centerpiece where it focuses on these two prophets who are miracle working prophets is um, a partial fulfillment of the promise at the end of Deuteronomy that God will raise up a prophet like himself. Moses says God will raise up a prophet like me from amongst your brothers. And that ultimately is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, because at some point a prophet went into Deuteronomy and said, nobody has been raised up like this yet. But God's promise is that he will raise up prophets or a prophet like Moses to lead the people into obedience. And Elijah is this um, prophet who is, you know, not unlike Moses, uh, tries to rescue the people a bit. Um, but then has to go into an exile. He goes into the land of Sidon. He goes into an exile with this widow and then is sent back to Israel to go and fight on behalf of the Lord. Now, the tragedy is that instead of fighting against, you know, Pharaoh with signs and wonders, now Elijah is actually fighting against Baal in Israel, against a king of Israel with signs and wonders. But there is kind of like a uh, Moses echo going on here because God had promised he was going to raise up prophets or a prophet to deliver his people. Now Elijah is going to do something like turning hearts back to the Lord here, but not at all the way that Jesus does through his death and resurrection. But we'll read this story and um, probably wouldn't be wrong to hear echoes of Elijah confront or of Moses confronting Pharaoh in this. And we're going to just behold a great sign um, worked by Elijah. So we're in chapter 18. Many days, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Okay, so again, uh, learning to read the stories the way God's written them. Um, we're following Elijah's story, and... God tells Elijah that three years are up. I'm going to go and I'm going to end this uh, this drought leading to famine. And so we see Elijah going to walk away. And then you have this little line that says, now the famine was severe in Samaria. And kind of like in a movie, we have a change of locations. That You have that little scene of God talking to Elijah. We get, I think, a summary of the plan. Go show yourself to Abraham. Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, when this plan is unfolded, you get this showdown between the prophets. It's not just like as soon as Elijah appears to Ahab, it starts raining. First, there's this whole thing. So I'm kind of thinking that God gave Elijah a bigger plan than this, but we hear the summary of the plan here. And then the scene changes from Elijah traveling to Samaria, and we're going to have a little scene with what Ahab has been up to or what Ahab is up to which is going to help us understand just how bad the drought has been and um, give us a sense of what Israel has been like politically spiritually politically politics are spiritual uh, while 
Elijah has been gone these three years. Verse 3, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land, to all the springs of water, to all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive, but not lose and not lose some of the animals. So they divided <clears throat> the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we learn a lot here. Um, when we meet Ahab, he and his household manager, so which might be something like the prime minister, he's the president and the household minister ma- manager is the prime minister, but one of his top politicians, they're about to leave on a journey, one heading east, one heading west, looking for some food for the horses. Oh, excuse me, my computer went... I'm saving the world with my energy, but I'm messing up my podcasts. And now we get this glimpse into Obadiah's character. We're told that he feared the Lord greatly, and we believe that because this is the Lord speaking to the prophet, telling us about Obadiah's heart. So very interestingly, Ahab is an unbelieving king, but the guy right underneath him is a believing person. And so it's good to remember, even when there's these generalizations of uh Israel having turned away from the Lord, you would still have these exceptions. And it just seems very much like the Lord to have um, the number two guy in a nation be the one who's really faithful and even working against the regime. And that's what Obadiah is doing. We find out that while Elijah's been gone, Jezebel has been killing true prophets. There has been a class of true prophets northern Israel, um, but Obadiah has managed to save the lives of a hundred of them, and they've just been hiding. And so this really reminds us that when God sent Elijah first to go and get fed by ravens, and then to go and hide out with the widow, there was a good reason for this. Jezebel has been um, doing doing uh, political executions of the prophetic power base, the religious power base, uh, that would stand against Baal. And so they head in these two different directions. And we also learn a little bit about Ahab. Um, Ahab, in this scene where you compare Obadiah and Ahab, Obadiah has been saving the lords of, a, of the true prophets from Ahab's wife. And Ahab is trying to save the life of the animals with grass. So what does Ahab care about? Well, he cares about his horses and mules. You know, the, the king stuff. Kings have horses and mules. We need to keep these guys alive. And Obadiah fearing the Lord has said there's prophets in the land and I need to keep those guys alive from the king's wife and so we have a really uh, big window into both these men's heart by what they're trying to keep alive the animals are threatened by the Lord's drought and the prophets are threatened by the Lord's enemies and one man is saving the prophets and the other one's trying to save the horses verse 7 and as Obadiah was on the way behold Elijah met him And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And uh, then you get this long speech by Obadiah. And it's very interesting. Whenever the Bible takes time to give a long speech there, it's really important. Um, The Bible is very comfortable just summarizing a conversation into one sentence. And so we get this long speech 
And really, I wonder if, I'm not 100% sure, but I wonder if we're just meant to understand, I guess, how dangerous and severe this time has been while Elijah's been gone, especially with um, uh, Jezebel in the mix. And so Obadiah, even though he's the number two guy, he is afraid of sudden death from Ahab um, in the midst of this thing. So verse nine, and he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that he has not found you. Okay, so now we know for sure why Elijah had to go and spend his time with just some no-name widow in the middle of nowhere. Because Ahab has been hunting for Elijah even outside of the border of Israel. And probably, again, trying to compel him to pray and get the rain back. Or at least punish him or whatever. Verse 11, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here and he will kill me. Okay, so we'll stop. That's the end of his speech. Again, you can just see how vulnerable he feels to sudden death uh, because of Elijah. Um, And he knows that Elijah has disappeared before. And so he says, you know, if I leave you, you're just going to disappear again. And I'm going to be dead here. And then he brings up the story of saving the prophets. And one of the things that we should be uh, sensitive to when we're reading Old Testament stories is that when um, the narrator tells us something and then people... Uh, say the same thing and it's almost word for word this is not just mere repetition it's a sign that this person is a truth teller it means that when they speak they agree with reality from God's perspective and so this even though for us it may sound like hey why is it repeating that the point is that it is confirming that Obadiah is a truth teller and he's probably right he's right that if he goes and says hey I found Ahab and then they can't or say that I found Elijah and they can't find Elijah, then he would be put to death. And so he's not making up the uh, danger he's in when Elijah gives him this message. But Elijah won't be dismayed, and he just comforts Obadiah and says it's going to be okay. Verse 15, And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Okay, so there we are. Uh, And it might be significant that Elijah first appears to a God-fearer and then is brought to the king. So, And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore go and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So this uh, conflict between uh, prophets, uh, Elijah the one prophet, and the 850 prophets of these two foreign gods, Baal and his wife Asherah, um, who are supported politically at Jezebel's table. So the true prophets have been fed by a raven and by a widow and by Obadiah sneaking bread and water into a cave, whereas the false prophets are being supported through the taxes of the country at the king's table. And Elijah is starting this fight. But yeah, he won't. It, it, we, we Again, we're getting insight into Ahab. He thinks this is all 
Elijah's fault. So he has a bit of a, a magical view of the world. As opposed to a theological view of the world. He thinks that this drought has come because Elijah said it should come. And he used the magic words and the, the drought came. Whereas Elijah corrects him that the drought has come not because of Elijah's words per se, but because of Israel's unbelief and idolatry. And if they had repented of their idolatry, I'm sure Elijah wouldn't have needed to pray if there had just been repentance. Kind of like in the story of Jonah when there's this, you know, threatened devastation coming and everyone humbles himself and it doesn't show up. That I'm sure that would have happened here if they'd done it. But instead, they persisted in their idolatry with these false prophets. And so the drought has persisted. Verse 20, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So that technically is called syncretism, where you join together two different religions. And the people of Israel had a kind of compromised religion that worshipped the Lord. Remember, they had the, made the... Uh, the golden calves and stuff so they still would have had some kind of israelite religion but they've also introduced baal and asherah through especially through the marriage of jezebel and so you have uh both of these things happen you have them kind of joined together and you also have kind of the lord demoted to the place of one god amongst many gods or he's just another idol in a sense and the people uh when confronted about this, they just kind of stand there. And so here comes this power confrontation, starting in verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So he sets up this test of power. I know Elijah says, I'm the only prophet left, and you have 450 men, and that's not technically true because of those hidden prophets, but for this showdown, it is true that Elijah's the only one at this competition. And so it, the odds are stacked against him numerically, and the people agree to this power contest. Verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your Lord, but put no fire to it. So he gives them home field advantage. Verse 26, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there's no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or is he relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Okay, so there's this humiliation here for the prophets of Baal. They, they've prepared their altar, and they go about their um, self-mutilating religion, cutting themselves. So this is a description of how extreme their prayer was. It's not like they were going half-hearted into it, but it's also uh, an illustration of how um, 
you know, these are acts that God has not asked people to do, to mutilate themselves in prayer. He never asked the people to do that. Instead, he at, at called upon them to give offerings out of his generosity to them, that he would be generous to them and they give him a portion back. So um, this is an exposure of their the the uselessness of their religion because their God couldn't answer them, but also an uh, exposure of, of just how... Um, gross the worship is as well and so he mocks them and it's funny he 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 he, tr- he just makes fun of their god like maybe he's thinking he can't you got to go wake him or like get his attention because he's you know he's contemplating the deep things of life like what well, you know what, what was here before i was here or he's going to the bathroom or he's on a journey or he's asleep and in part this is kind of a mockery of idolatry because any idol is is more creature than god the living god is invisible and internal and omnipresent and he is not subject to uh human weakness but baal would have been portrayed as a man and so he's making fun of him in the weaknesses that man have how they can think and not notice what's going around him that they have to go to the bathroom that they can't be everywhere and have to actually take time to get someplace or they they have to they eventually fall asleep and they can't do anything while they're asleep and so he's making fun of their god for being less than human because even the human beings that worship god can at least make some noise and cut themselves right now verse 30 then elijah said to all the people come near to me and all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the lord that had been thrown down so this is an act of like the uh, symbolizing the restoration of true worship Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying Israel shall be your name and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood and he said do it a second time and they did a second time he said do it a third time and they did a third time and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water so this really is um, making the miracle difficult. And it's this really interesting mix where, you know, the miracle is going to be difficult because not only is he calling for fire, but he's totally drenched the offering so that humanly it can't happen. You know, so something that's soaking wet doesn't just burst into flames. But that's intermixed, this, this act, with the re- restoration of a true altar with the 12 stones that's to remind the people of their history. Um, he's reminding them who they really are with this symbolic action. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, uh, Elijah the prophet came near and said, so you have that twice. And, you know, I, I, I wish I knew exactly that, what that meant. Was it later in the day? At least. But it also probably is just meant to remind us of the true worship at the, the temple. Um, that would have been going on elsewhere. So they're in the northern kingdom right now, but in the southern kingdom there would have been the uh, activity of of the worship of Yahweh at the temple going on at the same time. So at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, again going back to the, their, their ancient covenants, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Okay, so remember... Um, 
this whole story is about the God being faithful to his word because he's a God who speaks, whereas the God of Baal is a God who can't hear and also can't make noise. He can't answer. He doesn't do anything. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And that's where it ends and that, that part of the prayer. And so we really see Elijah's aim and desire here is to spark a revival of faithfulness back to the Lord amongst the people that turn their heart back. And it's unclear if that anything really happens because of this, that their hearts are really changed. It doesn't seem like it through history, but whatnot. This is Elijah's desire. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water from the trench. So the fire is so hot that it actually like melts the, the stones. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, See if the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So this is a turnabout and justice for the prophets of the Lord who've been killed. Now the prophets of Baal proven that they're, um, not, their God can't help them and isn't real, and therefore they've been running a scam on Israel, have paid for their scamming with their lives. Um, also interesting to think about, if you remember, uh, I think it's in Malachi where it says that Elijah's going to come before the great day of the Lord and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. And I think Malachi's picking up on this Elijah desire that um, God would act and turn people's hearts back to the Lord and each other in true faithfulness. And so um, when Malachi's prophesying the coming of Christ, um, John the Baptist is kind of considered to be the Elijah who is to come and that his ministry of calling for repentance is about turning people's hearts back to the Lord and turning people's hearts back to each other. And that's part of the gospel is that restoration of uh, family ties in the faith um, that, that, that comes along with the true worship of God. All right, verse 41, long chapter, but we're almost done. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. Okay, so remember Elijah said that uh, his commission from the Lord was that the Lord was going to send rain. So you have this big fight with fire, and now there's going to be a, uh, a demonstration of water coming from heaven too. So Elijah is a great prophet who controls through prayer both fire from heaven and water from heaven. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked toward the sea and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So, interesting scene as well. This is the, God, this is the Lord bringing an end to the drought with a heavy rain. And first it starts off with Elijah saying, you know, you're going to need some energy here. You're about to travel. So he tells Ahab to go and eat and drink while Elijah goes and prays. 
and then he has to pray a few times for this so again a good le little lesson in prayer we know that God is going to send the rain at the beginning of this chapter that's the plan but Elijah still needs to pray seven times which is a pretty persistent prayer and but knows that his prayers answered even at the very slightest beginning of it with a cloud coming up and then he tells Ahab it's time to stop your eating and start traveling or else you won't make it home to Jezreel and when Ahab leaves, Elijah gets, you know, empowered by the Lord and runs before Ahab, which is very interesting. Again, you know, Ahab has to eat and drink before his travel, and he's dependent on his chariot and the rain not being too bad. But then Elijah doesn't need to eat and drink, and then gets empowered by the Lord and can run before Ahab. Uh, so he can, like, his the Lord plus feet is better than a king in his chariot. Um, and so there's just, again, this whole theme of God's power being more powerful than the power of man. And it's, it's interesting, like Ahab, Ahab is double-minded in this. And it's almost like, you almost wonder if he's kind of relieved here that the Lord has showed up. Because, and it seems like he's almost repented. At the beginning of the next chapter, uh, uh, Ahab actually sounds pretty excited about what's happened. But uh, Jezebel gets really upset about it. And this changes the story again. Um, but... You know, Ahab sees what the Lord does and sees the destruction of the prophets of Baal, and he's not upset about it. He actually becomes obedient to the prophet, and he goes and eats and drinks, and then he goes and travels when the prophet says, and he begins to start coming under the word of God in this scene. But I think it's kind of lost once he gets home and his wife gets upset. So, anyhow, amazing chapter, very powerful, uh, but also shows a bit of the limits because. Um, God wasn't, you know, changing hearts by the power of the Spirit back then. It's almost like the the outward miraculous power sign doesn't quite do the job that Elijah wishes it would. But in the New Testament, with the sending of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually seems like he's doing more work to transform hearts so that even sometimes with less miracle, you get more uh, more heart transformation because something a little bit different is happening here in the New Testament time. I could be wrong about that, but it kind of seems like this. You have this great big power encounter, which is a great story to tell, but it doesn't bring about a great revival. Whereas in the New Testament time, sometimes even even less visible power encounter will do greater revival uh, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a great time to be alive. This is a great story with Elijah and would have been amazing to see, but it's better to be in the New Testament times where every single Christian gets the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who did these miracles living inside of us, which is a great thing to remember. And may the Lord fill us with his supernatural power so that we can do more than we'd be able to, and we can have our confidence in the Spirit of God instead of in the power of man. Amen.